Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Reka Basu came to Iowa to write for the Des Moines Register in 1992. Over the past 30 years, she has published more than 5,000 columns here in Iowa and many of them nationally through syndication. She has been fearless and fierce. She has been insightful and funny. She has been vulnerable. Her columns have revealed ugly truths, provoked outrage, inspired change, and started so many conversations. Conversations. Her words have made a difference, and she has persevered through challenges, personal loss and grief, and public attacks. Now she's decided that it's time to retire, and I have invited her here today to take a look back over her extraordinary career and to share a few more insights before her final column for the Register is published on December 1st. Reka Basu, thank you so much for being here. Charity, thank you so much for having me, and thank you for that beautiful introduction. Well, it's it's just wonderful to have you here, Reka, and every time I revisit your story, I think about how incredibly unlikely it is that you wound up in Des Moines, Iowa. <laughs> so let's let's start at the beginning. You had a very international, cosmopolitan upbringing. Tell us a little bit about it. Well, that's right. I was born in New Delhi, India, to Indian parents who uh, both worked for the United Nations in New York primarily. But over the course of their careers, they were posted in places like Libya and Egypt and Thailand and even India, and they were on such an India posting when I was born. Um, But we still moved around quite a bit in my first 10 years, then coming to settle in New York City um, by the time I was in fifth grade. So from there on, it was pretty much consistently uh, New York. And then I went to Massachusetts um, for college and um, moved to, well, was in New York back for grad school, moved to upstate New York for my first journalism newspaper jobs, and then came to Iowa having frankly, never set foot in the Midwest before. (laughs) Not even Chicago. So when you were growing up, you developed a a really strong interest in injustice. Yes. Tell me how that developed for you. Well, there was a personal part of my of um, my family. My mother had been a very independent woman in India, growing up in India, who was active in the movement for Indian independence from the British. And she had gone to law school there. And at a time when her parents wanted her to have an arranged marriage, as was typical, she decided instead to apply to Yale Law School for a fellowship to go there and got in got a full fellowship, and was one of the first women in her class, right? So there were only two women in her class that year. And um, she, you know, she was very much of a feminist and very much of a human rights activist, always had been. And so growing up, we learned a lot from her, first of all, about just being a strong, empowered woman and following your heart, and secondly, about social justice and human rights and the importance of people speaking up for what matters. 
Um, and my father, also at the UN, worked um, in economic and social affairs, the technical assistance branch for Asia and the Far East. So we did a lot of traveling to um, countries that were poverty-stricken or areas of those countries that were poverty-stricken. And we saw a lot of disparities between the way the rich and the poor lived um, that had to do a lot of it with colonialism, frankly. So my sister and I became keenly aware of the role of colonialism, which included U.S. imperialism, although it hadn't colonized countries in the same way that Britain had colonized India. So starting from the very, very beginning, I think we had a, a perspective that was framed by a lot of what we were witness to traveling around the world and talking around the dining table. But then my sister and I also were very privileged, I'd say, to go to the United Nations International School. Um, and that was in every country we lived in. There was a UN school. So we went to one in Bangkok when I was younger, and then we went to the one in New York um, all the way through graduation. And there were teachers there from every different country. And, the, you know, the history that we took was global history. Um, and we took the International Baccalaureate back then in the 1970s, before, long before it was available elsewhere here. So we always had a very kind of global perspective. And my mother's work in the Human Rights Division at the UN, which then broke off into a separate Women's Rights Division, um, was instrumental in that because she wrote the plan of action for the first International Women's Year in Mexico City. And I was there with her for that. And we went along to many of the conferences that she attended and saw much of, you know, what was being spoken about and learned, learned a lot from that and, you know, decided my sister and I each in our separate ways that we had to put it into the work we did in some fashion, although it took me a little while to figure out what that would be. My sister right. went into academia. <laughs> yeah, journalism, so journalism wasn't your first try, I guess, no. for a career where you felt like you could make a difference. What did you think you wanted to do? You know, actually, because of my parents' high ambitions for themselves and my sisters and, and for us and my sister's ambition, she became a college professor. Um, I was a little bit lost initially. I was sort of trying to find my way in America. And, you know, I called myself an international misfit because I wasn't quite sure where I belonged. I was always an outsider pretty much everywhere I went in the way I looked and sounded in my name and things. So I actually wanted to be an actress. And my first goal, I went to college. I did some acting in high school, and then I went to college as a theater arts major. But it was in, um, you know, the period of first the the, um, the Vietnam War, and then that was in high school, and then in college, a lot of other social upheaval around women's rights and civil rights issues. And I just became very active in that on campus and realized that, that theater wasn't going to do it for me, that I had to do something that was more kind of directly involved in Eventually, from doing a bunch of social protest and, and studying more on current events issues, I decided to um, get um, my bachelor's in sociology and then a, a master's degree in political economy and popular writing. So the first articles that I wrote were pretty much for um, – alternative publications because they were really the only ones that were interested in what I had to say on, on global issues and on women's rights issues. And um, it wasn't until I went back to journalism school, I went to Columbia and got a degree in journalism a few years later, that I actually was able to start moving into mainstream newspapers, starting with my first job at the Kingston Daily Freeman in upstate New York 
which was a paper that I chose only because my parents had a country house in Woodstock, which was right next to it, and I could live rent-free. Um, and given the very, very <laughs> low wages they were paying at the time, that was probably the only way I would have been able to afford rent, was no rent. And that's actually, as luck would have it, the editor um, of the paper was Rob Borsellino, he, who ended up becoming my husband. And um, some seven years later, I dragged him out to Iowa. <laughs> <laughs> and, and of course, many Iowans also read and loved the work that your husband, Rob Borsellino, did for the Des Moines Register as Thank well. You. Thank and, you. And we'll talk more about him. But um, what then made this connection with Iowa because you were happily married and starting yes. a family, two little boys, yes. and writing I for have. the Kingston Daily Freeman, and it, Rob was the editor. <laughs> so what what helped you make this connection with the register? It was a challenge. The first thing that happened was I was um, at that point when I made the decision, which was back in the late, I guess in 1991 is when I first moved out here. Um, the year before, I was at that point working as an editorial writer for the Schenectady Daily Gazette. And um, th- and I had gone to a national conference of editorial writers in Florida. And I met Dennis Ryerson there. And he was there representing um, the Des Moines Register. And he was an editorial – he was the editorial page editor at the time. And he told me a lot about the register and its values and its editorial perspective. And I had they had just won the Pulitzer Prize, actually, that year that I went to the conference um, for a series on rape that had been initiated by a column that then-editor Geneva Overholzer had written. And what she had said in her column really spoke to me. She said... She, she urged someone who had been a survivor of rape to come forward and share her story using her own name. And what Geneva wrote was, there is so much stigma around rape that a lot of – that newspapers have adopted this policy of not identifying rape victims. But she said, we will honor that policy as long as we have to, but I wish that one woman would just come forward who has been a rape survivor and use her own name because what we need to do is destigmatize being a victim of rape and stigmatize being a rapist instead. And Nancy Ziegenmeyer had read that column. She had been a rape survivor. She came forward. She shared her story with a very new reporter at the time in a series of different conversations with her. And um, that story went on, that series of stories went on to win the public service prize um, for journalism um, by the Pulitzer Foundation. So it, it spoke volumes to me. And Geneva was also the sort of editor who said, you know, she'd lived internationally herself, and she said, you go into journalism to change the world. And at that point, I was – I had been two years at this Connectedy Gazette, and I was considering moving to a larger paper. But I really needed to work for a paper whose values I shared and whose editorial perspective I shared because as an editorial writer and not a columnist, I would have been writing the institutional – newspaper's views rather Mm -hmm. than my own, right? So Geneva is one of those people. And the following year, I saw that they had an opening for, I saw an editor in Publisher Magazine that the Des Moines Register had an opening for an editorial writer. And, 
you know, this was problematic, as you mentioned, because I was married to Rob, and we had a home in an Albany suburb, and we had a five-year-old son and a son who was still in diapers, less than two years old, who were very happily established in daycare centers. And it really meant tearing the family apart for a while if I were to take this job, which I was offered after I um, after I applied. And, you know, my first thought was, and Rob encouraged me, he said, just go to Des Moines for the interview and meet your heroine, Geneva, and get to know a little bit about the paper. And then, you know, we'll see what happens. I think neither one of us expected it would happen that I would be actually offered the job because they had something like 200 applicants wow. for it. And but, Reka, yeah. we're going to have to pick up this story in just a moment because okay. we have to take a short break. Of course. I am talking with Reka Basu, who has been writing for the Des Moines Register for 30 years. She has announced that she is retiring and her final column for the Register will be published on December 1st. We are taking a look back at her extraordinary career and we'll look forward later on as well. This is Talk of Iowa. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Support for IPR comes from the Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about the Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Reka Basu has been a columnist for the Des Moines Register for 30 years. Many of her columns have also been published around the country through national syndication. She is the author of Finding Her Voice, a compilation of her Register columns focusing on women. She is retiring, and she will publish her final column on December 1st. And this hour, we are taking a look back through her extraordinary career and also... We will look forward a little later on as well. I know that Reka Basu's work has meant a great deal to many Iowans. And if you'd like to share your thoughts, you can send us an email, talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. And Reka, we kind of uh, left things on a cliffhanger. <laughs> you <laughs> so had, to speak, right, yeah. You had come to Iowa. You had interviewed for this columnist job. But you had this great life that you had built in New York with Rob Borsellino and your children. And they offered you really what was a dream job for you. I mean, Mm -hmm. tell me just in brief what made this opportunity so powerful for you. Well, it meant working for a newspaper that I really admired um, and for an editor who I really admired. And I had gotten to know the editorial page editor, Dennis Ryerson, a bit as well and thought he would be a wonderful person to work with because we all shared the same views about, about the need to make social change through journalism. So it was very, very difficult thing to say no to. And we went back and forth, Rob and me. And Rob happened to be away on a trip to India, of all things, a junket on a boat. And we were <laughs> speaking to each other every night after I got the offer. And, you know, he he decided, this was his side of the story, he decided that he was going to say to me um, in our next phone call that he was really sorry he had been so sexist and said, no, you really shouldn't do this. We have a family. What about that? And actually say... Um, you know, I think you should take the job. But then he claimed that I instead, the next time we spoke long distance, said I decided to take the job. 
Um, <laughs> I actually don't agree that that's the way it went, but memory can be selective. Somehow yes. we came to an agreement that I would do it, and I take it for at least a year. We would see in that time if there was a job here in Iowa for him, and if it was too difficult for us to live apart that way, then, you know, I would either come back or he would move out here or something would happen. But as it turned out, he was offered a job within, um, I guess, 10 months after I had moved here by business publications by Connie Weimer, who um, invited him to be the editor of the Des Moines business records. So he came out here, initially did that, and then had a series of other jobs um, with television and um, ultimately and the Des Moines Register and ultimately became a fellow columnist at the Register. So that was the happy end of that story. Absolutely. And and again, a beloved columnist. Yes. Uh, I, I will say that in... I first started reading your columns, Reka, in 1992, which was really when I first started reading the newspaper because I was in high school in mm. 1992. Yeah. Why don't you just enforce right, the age difference Sorry about that. Us. Thanks. Um, <laughs> and, and I didn't know anything about Rob because I grew up in Cedar Falls. And so mm. I got the statewide version of the Des Moines Register. And so I, I learned that you were married to Rob Borsolino and that he had this wonderful column after I moved to central Iowa and I started reading his column as well. But uh, Reka, your voice was so fresh and so exciting. And and I will tell you that as a 17-year-old girl living in Iowa, that I was so struck by your columns as soon as I discovered them. And oh, charity. But, that means a lot. Thank well, you. it was such a powerful and feminist voice. And that was not something that I had really encountered in mm-hmm. that way before. When you started writing in Iowa, how did people respond? You know, it was very varied, actually. People were, some people were furious, and usually it was men. <laughs> I got a lot of hate mail. I've always gotten a lot of hate mail all of my career. But in the beginning, people really didn't know what to make of me and why a New Yorker would come, would deem to take it upon themselves to come here and quote-unquote educate right. An Indian-American yeah. New Yorker who's a woman. Exactly. <laughs> right. it's like, go back to India is what I heard most oh, often. Wow. Although some people said, go back to New York, I'll pay your bus fare there, because I think paying my airfare to India would have been just too expensive for them. So they were <laughs> they preferred to send me back to New York than to India. But, yeah, there was a lot of that. But I have to say that women also um, were not quite sure much what to make of me. And some of them just didn't share my sense of outrage about some of what was going on and felt that I took it too far. May I read you from the introduction of my book about that charity? Sure. Okay, because this is one of the first columns that I wrote that I'm going to mention that actually generated quite a bit of response and not all of it, most of it not happy. So this is the introduction to my book, Finding Her Voice. Two decades ago, I moved to Iowa armed with a New Yorker's sense of absolutes, intending to write commentaries on race, gender, and human rights. I was accustomed to activists pounding on reporters' doors to publicize their causes, So when a corporate sponsor of Planned Parenthood pulled its support from rural health clinics around Iowa under pressure from anti-abortion groups, it was surprising to hear scarcely a word uttered in protest. When a local judge addressing a judicial conference made an appalling joke about how a woman's anatomy could be used as a flower vase, people shrugged it off. 
and an effort to end an equal rights amendment to the state's constitution was regarded as nitpicky and quietly went down in defeat. Where is Des Moines women's anger about social issues demanded one of my first columns. Um, I could go on, but I'll tell you, um, I saw it. I saw the anger in response to this column. Um, and, and but it some, wasn't the anger you were expecting. No, it was anger at me, you know, for, for deeming to say that women aren't angry enough. And, you know, people would tell me we don't value anger in Des Moines. We value harmony and collaboration and cooperation. And I got that there was definitely a cultural difference in my approach coming from New York um, and places where, you know, you express outrage and indignation about something you think is wrong as opposed to walk, working behind the scenes gradually towards an end result. I just wasn't seeing those end results coming out fast enough. And what I went on to say is, you know, um, still Iowa today, I talked about some of the, the incredible things that had happened for women's rights in Iowa over the years. Um, but I said, still Iowa today shares only with Mississippi the status of never having elected a woman to Congress or to the governor's office. Women began to quietly share with me their experiences of being sidelined, exploited, or rendered invisible. One high-powered businesswoman whispered that she almost couldn't contain her rage but couldn't express it safely. I met women waging bitter child support battles whose deadbeat ex-husbands had escaped prosecution. I saw the police refusing to enforce no-contact orders against abusive partners, and I learned the most powerful club for business people was closed to women. So those were just some of the examples um, that I saw, and that prompted me to write that piece. Wow. And this... This opportunity at the register, I mean, it gave you the opportunity to say things that no one else was saying. Mm -hmm. And you had the courage to say those things. How did you think about your role as a columnist when you first started? I really saw myself as an advocate for social justice. And by the way, the one step that I missed about in talking about is that I came here to be an editorial writer, which would have been to express the institutional viewpoint of the Des Moines Register. But I started contributing columns about certain social issues from my own particular lens and background. And the editors liked that enough to create a whole separate column for me. So eventually, within two years, I went from being an editorial writer slash columnist to being a full-time columnist, which was an absolute dream job, Charity, because I was free to say anything I wanted. And honestly, I was never once halted in what I was saying. Nobody said this is too strident or this topic is off limits. You know, I was I could say anything. And it was exactly what I had gone to journalism school for and wanted to become a journalist for, although I had to spend the first early years of my career trying to edit out the opinion of everything mm. I wrote, right, because I was I was a reporter. Um, what, what being a reporter did for me, though, was it taught me how to report and how to investigate and who to approach and how to approach the right players fearlessly. So I felt free here, very free, to write exactly what I wanted to. Now, in the beginning, there wasn't a full-time columnist opinion columnist slot open for me. I was shared between the feature section and the opinion section. So some of my 
commentaries, my slice of life about, you know, I wouldn't say the softer side of life, but the more internal side of life, especially for women. Um, and one of those examples is actually something that I provoked, a conversation that I provoked back in Schenectady when I decided to make the move out here. I wrote a column about it. And, you know, people weighed in with a lot of different emotions, some saying Basu is just a selfish person who cares about her own career more than she cares about her family. And then other people wrote in and said, why shouldn't women be as free to make a choice like that, to move for their careers and have their husbands follow? And so, you know, those were the kinds of conversations that I was also trying to generate here, a lot of them gender-based. Gender yeah. And Courtney Crowder wrote a, a beautiful article yes, right after did. you announced uh, your retirement and, of course, published that in the Des Moines Register. And one of the stories that, that she shares is about a column that you did in Iowa. And you mentioned your reporting skills. And I think that that is one of the things that distinguishes you as a columnist, because many of your columns are also based on reporting and sometimes investigative journalism that you have done. So you're not just presenting an opinion or an idea, not mm -hmm. that there's anything wrong with that, but you're also reporting out these stories. And you have made it part of your mission to amplify the voices of those who are not being heard. And, and one of the examples that, that Courtney Crowder included in her story was about a high school student at Dowling in Des Moines who had been raped and was being ostracized because she had accused someone well-known in Des Moines of raping her. Tell me about that experience. So this was a story that um, was in the news quite a bit, although she, the young woman wasn't being identified. And the injustice was, was just so blatant. I couldn't believe that, that nobody was out there pounding the pavements in her support. She had accused him of it. She hadn't even initially said anything about it um, to police, but she was being followed by some of his friends and taunted and haunted to the point where she started acting out in class. And they got so the school when when they pulled her into the office and said what's going on she was forced to tell the story of what had happened to her and what had prompted all these other boys to be following her and hounding her they didn't believe her story but because she was being outspoken in class and mouthing off at her teachers they expelled her and they ex they kept him they kept wow. they kept the person who she said had raped her but they expelled her and what ended up happening is I did a bunch of research about – I interviewed her, first of all, and she told me what happened. I called the West Des Moines police, and they said that they um, believed her story checked out, and they were very surprised and and unhappy that charges hadn't been criminally filed against him because she had shared her information with police. And they said they had everything, including a semen sample from him in the area where she said that it happened. So um, I wrote a column, and the headline of it was, Is Dowling Punishing a Rape Victim? And um, I, I guess I didn't hear anything more about it except that his family subsequently moved someplace in the south, and he moved. And then about six months after that, I got a call from a young woman who went to school with him in that southern state. It might have been Texas. It might have been Florida. 
And she said, I came across your column about the rape charge against him, and I've been raped by him too. And I just want to talk to the other girl you interviewed because I think our experiences were very similar. And at that point, I knew, I knew for sure, because there was no other way to know for sure, right, that, that her story was true. So I put the two of them in touch. And then I don't know what happened with, with the woman in the South. I moved away to Florida. I came back. And literally 15 years after I had written that piece, I got a voicemail message one night on my office phone. And it was from her, the survivor. And she said, I just wanted to tell you, I'm calling you in the middle of the night. She said, I just wanted to tell you, I've gotten my life together. I got therapy. I live in a different part of the state now. And she said, but for so many years, I carried around your column because you were the only person who believed me. Nobody else believed me. And there were so many times, she said, when I wanted to kill myself and I thought about killing myself and then I would take out your column and read it and remember that someone believed me. And she said, tonight, it was in the middle of the night when she called, I pulled it out and I shed a few tears and I thought, finally, I should tell you this. And it had such a profound impact on me. I still get shivers talking about it, Charity, because it it makes me think of how many young women are not believed and the tragic consequences of that. And I have to tell you that I've done a lot of writing in my columns here about sexual abuse of women and especially of young women. And it's the thing that draws the biggest pushback. But there is so much denial in so many of, especially the smaller communities about it, that these sexual abusers, even though reports are made, nothing happens to them. They go unpunished and they continue to stay there at schools where they have been coaches and colleges where they've been coaches of winning teams and nothing is done to them but the girls' lives are permanently destroyed and even the community turns against them for saying bad things about their winning coaches. Wow. Hearing from that woman, knowing about the difference that you made in her life, is it moments like those that have made it possible for you to continue to tell those stories and get all of that hate mail? It absolutely is. It absolutely affirms my decision to do what I do and to tell stories like that because I don't think enough people are telling them. And there's so much more that needs to be told. But you know, it's interesting this week when it became public that I was going to be retiring. I've been getting, you know, there were a lot of columns, um, comments posted underneath Courtney's story. And one of them takes a special umbrage at me for denouncing the Catholic Church in several of my columns. One was this one about the Dowling Catholic because it was a Catholic high school. And the other one was a case in which um, I followed up on a suicide of a young man who had been abused by a priest, a Catholic priest in the Des Moines Diocese who um, subsequently was reassigned and reassigned and finally moved by the church to um, a retirement home for abusive priests, as it turns out. Who knew there was such a thing, right? Right. And um, as a result of the column, he ended up being excommunicated. Um, And the sister of this man who committed suicide ended up, before his death, he he did die eventually, being able to have a face-to-face meeting with this priest and get an apology from him, which was all that she ever wanted. 
Reka, we have to take another break. Okay. <laughs> so we'll be back in just a moment. I'm talking with Reka Basu, who has been a columnist for the Des Moines Register for the last 30 years. She is retiring. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at UpstreamFM.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. With me today is Reka Basu. She has been a columnist for the Des Moines Register for 30 years. Many of her columns have also been published nationally through syndication. She's the author of Finding Her Voice, which is a compilation of some of her Register columns. She is retiring and will publish her final column for the Register on December 1st. And Reka, I think I have about three more hours of things that I want to talk to you about, <laughs> and we don't have that kind of time. But I do want to ask... Tomorrow at right. this time. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to ask you about the changes that you have been through in the newspaper industry because, uh, you know, I, I was reminiscing about the early 90s when I was mm-hmm. reading the Des Moines Register. It was the state paper of record at that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Register changed policies to focus more on central Iowa. There have been a lot of other changes. But you've been there through all of that. Uh, Tell me a little bit about how you've witnessed this industry, which has so many challenges change. I mean, first of all, um, let me just say, Charity, that this we are living in an era where more than ever before in my life, we need real news, legitimate news, and a lot of it, a lot of investigative news. And we need people to be able to discern the difference between fake news and real news, because there's also a lot of fake news out there, especially being spewed on the Internet. And it is so sad to me that newspapers are losing readership at a time like this when they are most needed. It's very difficult to support newspapers. Um, The industry has been in decline because in part of the proliferation of news over the Internet or via Twitter, a lot of people, young people, including my own kids at various times, have gotten their major headlines from Twitter. So it's really been a struggle for survival. And... Yeah, the register has contracted. We don't have the same same outstate circulation. We don't publish a paper in print on Saturdays. Uh, we moved out of the big Des Moines register that office that I first started in downtown to a much smaller space in Capitol Square on one floor of Capitol Square. So much has changed. Um, and that makes me obviously very sad, but I still believe we do very high-quality journalism. And I think that the people who keep being hired continue to be first-rate reporters. What makes me sad now is that so many newspapers, including to an extent my own, have cut back on opinion. Um, there is this sense that the political polarization in this country is driving readers away from opinion, that they don't want to see such strong opinions voiced in different ways on different sides. Um, And so they would rather do away with opinion commentary entirely at many newspapers, and many papers have done that, rather than continue to have, to try to have both sides represented. Um, The Register has not done that, but it has cut back on the number of days when it has opinion columns to two. Used to be every day of the week they had editorials and commentary. Now it's just Thursdays and Sundays. The newspaper industry 
is there there are so many different ways that newspapers operate and there are some independent newspapers you said it's hard to support your local newspaper and mm-hmm. and it actually is i mean you can subscribe to your local newspaper but if it's something that you feel very strongly about for example, like public radio, you know, mm-hmm. there there aren't mm-hmm. that many papers where you can say, "Hey, I want to give more. I want I want to <laughs> support this effort," um, because it's a business. And True, but there is, by the way, an Iowa Newspaper Foundation that was started recently to to do exactly what right. you're saying to support newspapers in small town communities. So that is a place where people can contribute to keeping them alive. So and they'll... and those independent papers, some of them, the ones that have survived this long, and that wasn't easy, mm-hmm. have some of them have really found. Found new life as people are discovering that wait we really we really need this. Mm-hmm. A larger corporate paper has different challenges. Yes, it absolutely does. It has it has the directions in which the corporation might want to take it. It has the bottom line profit issues. You know, obviously, it's no secret that corporations um, demand a lot more in profits than independent newspapers used to or do. Um, so that does become a struggle to balance priorities. And I've seen that happen. It's also really hard for young people who believe in journalism, who want to become journalists, to make a living as yes, journalists. I mean, you that's always been a bit of a problem. You talked about how, how yeah. you needed to live rent-free to be right. able to start your your journalism career. Most of us don't have that, that opportunity to live exactly. rent-free to be able to do that. But also... Um, we really shouldn't have to. And yes. it's very, we see so many young journalists leave the business mm-hmm. because they just can't sustain a life. And yet uh, journalism is one of the things that is keeping our democracy afloat in this country. Absolutely and I mean, you were talking correct. about the incredible importance. So when you, I know that you have done a great deal to to mentor young people through your time at the Register. I know that's a passion of yours. When you look at young people in journalism right now, what do you think? You know, it's funny. I, it was at at the point that there was going to be a big layoff in newspapers. I was asked to come and speak at some college about going into journalism and young urging young people to go into journalism and to major in it. And I I actually declined the invitation because I didn't know exactly what to say. Now, I do know that there are still portals for young people to start out. But as far as continuing into, you know, real adulthood, when you want to have a family and children and maybe buy a house, it becomes very difficult given the wages that are typically paid. So we do see a lot of young people moving on after a couple of years. And I guess, you know, the best that we can ask for at this point, if we're not going to pay better salaries, is to to benefit from their skills for those years that we can have them. The other challenge, Charity, has been getting more people of color to work in the newspaper. And when we do get people of color as reporters, they usually are here for only a couple of years, typically. And there are other reasons for that. I mean, sometimes they just don't find the larger area here hospitable or diverse enough for them to want to stay. But again, you know, every time you lose someone like that, it becomes challenging to find someone else to take their place. So, yeah, there's a revolving door in this industry. And we've had a bunch of layoffs. It's no secret. So it's all sort of a perfect storm brewing. And I feel very, very sad about that. And one of my thoughts in retiring was, frankly, to maybe maybe my salary of 30 years here, you know, could help keep a couple of people in this newspaper business longer. I hope it will. What made it time 
for you to retire? Well, in part, I started to see the writing on the wall as far as newspapers cutting back on commentary and as far as some readership, some parts of readership really becoming angry that we had commentary at all and the hatred that flows. There was actually um, an, an article done for Editor and Publisher Weekly some years ago that interviewed me about um, the number of women on opinion pages was really low. It was very hard to keep women on opinion pages because there was so much backlash mm. by men in particular. Yeah. And so they felt intimidated and left. And you know that's continued to be a problem. Also, I my parents were forced to retire from the United Nations at the age of 60, and that was just the mandatory UN retirement age. And because they were retiring and they were not allowed to become U.S. citizens in that time, they had to go back to India. So I lived through that period. They left. I stayed, which was very difficult. But they started new work in their retirements. You know, they were young enough where they still had energy and passion and idealism to do other things. And, I th- and I'm not that young, but I do think maybe I'll still have a shot at doing other things on my own terms, not being a full-time employee, but maybe contributing opinions in various different media. And I also want to just be more engaged with the community here in some of the issues that are important in whatever capacity. Uh- I sense that this was a really difficult decision. You've been very open about that. You wrote a column um, musing about Charles Grassley's decision whether or not to retire, whether or not he was going (laughs) to run again. Right, right. We know the decision that he made. Um, But also musing about about your own decision. So this is something that, that you've been thinking about for quite a while. You know, I wrote that piece in September of last year. And I realized when I looked at it again today um, in preparation for, for this conversation, I realized it was written shortly after my my grandbaby, my first grandchild was born. And I think what was going in my mind on in my mind at the time was also, you know, maybe I really shouldn't be working full time. Maybe I should be able to spend more time with him. And, you know, sadly, he's in a different part of the country. They were living in New York then. Now they live in Baltimore. My other son lives in Los Angeles. You've had him on, actually. Yes, Raman. <laughs> and Raman, that's right. And, and you know, I want to be freer to go and see them whenever I want to, to travel with them, to spend more time to them. So I, so I think that that's why I was thinking about it then. But I also kind of was floating that out there charity to see how people would respond. You know, you have no, you have no sense of who, you know, your fans or haters are unless they write to you. And I wanted to know how how readers felt. Should I retire? Have you had experience with t- retirement? Do you think I'm worth keeping in the paper anymore? You know, that kind of question. I put it out there. And now I, I've decided to do it. All right, right. So we weren't convincing enough to say, Rachel, we need you. <laughs> People were very kind. They said, you know, you should follow your heart. We will miss you a lot. We love your column, but you should follow what you you'll know when it's time, they said. You will know when it's absolutely time. And I and I realize now it is. One of my favorite columns that you've written in the last couple of years was uh, about the the birth of your grandson and the just falling madly in love with him, but mm-hmm. also how he makes you want to be an even better human than you are now. So have you spent a lot of time thinking about legacy? Yeah, yeah, I, I have. I mean, I you know, he forces you to. He... I remember writing in that column that, you know, I was sitting above his bassinet and a fly buzzed around. And in the past, my instinct might have been to swat it 
and you know just to get it away from him and protect him but i was thinking of this little creature which that doesn't know anything about values and life and what matters and why should i kill a creature to protect him why should i kill a fly i haven't killed one since by the way wow. you know <laughs> and and his parents are both vegetarians they don't you know they don't even they're not they're not vegans but vegetarians they don't eat meat or fish or anything like that at all and i've always been a meat eater we grew up that way um, in my family but now i've thought about uh, becoming a vegetarian i think it would mean a lot to them and if this child is going to be one maybe i should set an example for him too there are things like that that are much more personal than you know the kind of work that i advocate that i do advocating for issues um and stories but yeah i want to be a better human being for him you have been publishing some incredible work recently on um drug addiction and deaths that take place because of opiate use and fentanyl. And that feels like a mission that you are are trying to see. Obviously, we can't get to the finish line with this issue, but it feels like you have more that you feel it's important to say about that. There is much more to be said about that. And I think one of the big things that needs to be said is the lack of treatment options for people who are ready, because often people who are addicted to substances are not ready um, to stop. But then there comes this magical moment when everything, you know, just conspires to make them think, I cannot live this way anymore. And if at that moment there isn't a facility with a bed open, they're out of luck. And typically hospitals will admit people who are overdosing, keep them in, you know, for a day or two, and then let them go unless a judge orders that they be kept inpatient for a while. But that's not for long. It may be for a week or so. And there are not enough places that will take them in long term to make it work. So I think we have a big problem in Iowa. And I will be, I'm actually now working on a piece to run this coming Sunday about that, about, you know, where do you go when you're actually ready to think about quitting and where do you get the support for that so it doesn't end in a suicide or an overdose death. So, yeah, I'm sorry not to be able to do full justice to the subject in my time here. What do you think might be next for you, other than hopefully some more snuggles with a grandson? <laughs> Definitely snuggles with the grandson. A lot of travel, international travel, I hope. I, I am planning to go to India now in March. Again, I'll be done with the paper by then. To st- We still have a home there, my mother's childhood ancestral home, and she passed away in 2018, so we have a lot to do with that house um, and a lot of decisions to make and a lot of things to do in packing up her stuff. Um, I really, I'm passionate about traveling globally, and I would love to do as much of that as I can. I want to continue writing and contributing to newspapers, not necessarily local ones, but national ones, those that still, you know, do offer a lot of commentary and are looking for commentary. Um, I I also really like... um, moderating. There was, we used to have this this forum, the Smart Talk um, Readers Women's Talk Series, and I was, I was the host of that for a while. And I just loved engaging some of these women in conversation on a stage at Hoyt Sherman um, about various issues in their lives. I'd love to do something like that again, but not on a full-time basis. Part-time, I think, would be perfect. What have you heard from people since Courtney wrote that beautiful article about your retirement? I hope oh. I hope that that you've been flooded by 
love I, letters. I have been. I have been, Charity, and thank you. It's been overwhelming and really humbling, and reading some of it just makes me cry because people are so kind and so generous, and people have talked about, you know, having grown up reading my columns and their lives being affected by it, making changes in their lives. Some have talked about growing up more liberal than one might think in a state like Iowa because of reading my commentaries, um, just having their minds open to how different people live and how society marginalizes certain kinds marginalizes certain kinds of people and the changes that need to be made there. So it's been, you know, and then you feel like you don't want to desert the people who have been following you avidly. So it's it's very bittersweet. Yeah. But I feel so, so lucky to have had this dream job for so many years. I'm sure there have been times when you have been frustrated and felt like you weren't making a difference. So I, oh, I hope that I hope that, <laughs> that all of these these words remind you that you have made a difference and for a long time and for a lot of people. Thank you for that. Me included. Reka Basu, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you so much for this wonderful conversation, Charity. Reka Basu has been a columnist for the Des Moines Register for 30 years. Many of her columns have also been published around the country through syndication. She's the author of Finding Her Voice. It's a compilation of her Des Moines Register columns about women. And she is retiring She will publish her final column on December 1st in the Des Moines Register. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe.